cliffcentral.com. Yes, indeed. Nando's fires it up with us this morning. And the burning platform, which is brought to you by Nando's, is going to be super hot today because we've got so many things to get through and there's a lot happening in this country of ours. At the moment, we'll also cast our eyes internationally for a little bit and we'll get into the very, very touchy and difficult issue of race, which can never be discussed enough, it seems, in South Africa. I'm joined, as always, by Pumi Mashiho, who is uh, part of the burning platform like... uh, like, you know, milk is part of tea. That's how I see it. And uh, this morning, we also have two other guests. We're also joined um, at the beginning of the show this morning by Chris Fisher, who's a legal researcher at the Helen Sussman Foundation, which was founded back in 1993 to honor the life's work of Helen Sussman. Christopher, good morning. How are you? Good. Thanks. And you, Gareth? Very good. Um, you're a little bit soft there. I don't know if we can boost your... Your sound just a little bit. There we are. That's probably a bit better. Um, so Chris, uh, yeah, no, no, there's nothing you could do, but maybe there's something we can do here. So I'll try and do that on our side. So first of all, um, Chris, do you want to just give us what, what the, the official, um, Helen Sisman Foundation response is to Jacob Zuma being arrested? Because I think a lot of people are interested in, in what you guys might think of this. As an NGO, you've been at the forefront at the Helen Sisman Foundation of, fighting for civil liberties, fighting for justice, making sure that the law is applied equally to all South Africans. Um, Pumi and I started the show this morning talking about Jacob Zuma, but in a much more kind of personality and, and, and society way. How do you guys view this, and what's your, what's your take on his being uh, sentenced this week for contempt of court? And, and essentially, as a friend of the court. Yeah, as a they friend, of the, the court. friend Cur- of the court. Curious, what, uh, Amike Curie, what is it called? Amicus Curiae. Yeah. What is, I can't remember how you Amicus guys say Curie, it. Yeah. There we are. What do you think of that? Yeah. Well, look, the, uh, the decision has been welcomed um, from our perspective. Uh, I think it's very hard to look at the judgment and be dissatisfied with the, with the statement of, um, you know, the statement of how important the rule of law is in South Africa and particularly the, 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 the orders of the constitutional court. So there was a very, very, very strong statement that the orders of courts in general, uh, need to be, um, need to be, need to be, um, obeyed, but also mm-hmm. the constitutional court in particular. There's something particularly harmful about a powerful person like a former president being able to, uh, just turn his nose up at the orders of the court, and the majority, at least, was unequivocal in how in how dangerous that was. And uh, and you can only welcome that that statement um, if you are an organisation like us who who believes in the rule of law. Um, and even in a time of crisis like this, we want to see those uh, those sorts of strong uh, strong statements. Um, we were admitted as uh, Amicus Curiae, yeah, which is a friend of the court. Mm-hmm. Um, we, 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 we did that. Uh, we did that so that we could sort of, um, give our own perspective on how the, the sentencing should work. So the commission had applied for a straightforward two year prison sentence. Um, we thought that the, the, the court would benefit from at least considering an order to try get Mr. Zuma, uh, to testify. So our, our suggestion was to, was to give a mandatory prison sentence, um, as a minimum. And then try and craft some sort of creative way to get him uh, to testify. Ultimately, the court uh, the court went uh, went with a purely punitive order, um, and it's hard to it's hard just hard to disagree fundamentally with the reasoning. It's certainly not antithetical to our values, um, but we we're glad the debate was had because you know the, the the value of Mr. Zuma's testimony didn't disappear the day he decided not to not to testify at the, at the state capture commission. So, so Chris, I mean, I, I hate to go into the, the realm of speculation, but do you think, first of all, because I'm a little concerned that South Africans are celebrating this as a victory for justice and, you know, an equal application of the law um, too soon. Certainly it does show that the judiciary are not going to be pushed around at the level of a constitutional court. And that's good news because we have heard almost unending and interminable complaints about how politicians seem to have the upper hand and are able to get judges to sway things their way. And we've heard all kinds of things about the independence of the, the judiciary being questioned. Um, my worry is just, does this result in a practical, because most, most South Africans are practical people, right? We're going to look at this and a judgment's all good and well. And, and if it can't be applied, if it can't be executed, it doesn't really have the value that we're talking about now. Does it? And can he, for example, can he thwart this order? Can he deliberately disobey it and become a fugitive? Can he become 
like the medical parole uh, Sheikh Shabir person that we we joke and, and and make fun of to this very day what what are the what are the actual applications of this now and mm-hmm. and i know that some of this is speculative on, on any of our parts but what happens from here the order has been granted but so what agree yeah so so the legal question has been answered and i think that's where the the rallying and the celebration has uh, has centered around legally we've got this bold statement and the judiciary has certainly made its voice clear. It's now handed off the problem essentially to other arms of government. Uh, the, the, the arms of government do work together, so it's not a, it's an abdication of responsibility. But if Mr. Zuma doesn't prese- uh, present himself voluntarily, the minister of the police and, and, uh, and, head of, uh, and the head of SAPs are going to have to affect the arrest. So you are correct that there's an extra step in this before it becomes... Uh, truly worthy of celebration. There are perhaps practical um, practical loopholes or practical ways that Mr. Zuma could thwart the, the implementation. But given the fact that the Minister of Police has to do something as well, there could be a political will issue. The sort of crisis that would follow that, I think, would be much more fundamental than the crisis we've just gone through, though. Um, so it would take a, a pessimism that certainly I haven't I haven't yet felt to to see to see to see government not stepping up in this uh, in the execution of this order, but you are correct. It has to be followed through cleanly, um, executed cleanly. If this is going to be a proper victory for for the rule of law, mm-hmm. yeah, Pums, Chris- Pums, you go ahead because I know you you have many questions. I also want to think just a little bit about the political implications of this and and how this this does tend to put South Africans into two camps again and and then by no means equal in size. But Pumi, you start with your questions. I'm not going to butt in. Chris, I'm, I'm very interested to hear why, you know, the, before this judgment and even before the hearing at the Constitutional Court, there was lots of talk around why this is a constitutional matter. So why is this matter at the Constitutional Court? Why isn't it being dealt with through the lower courts, the high courts, the Court of Appeal and Hana Hana Hana? Yeah. So that was, uh, that was a key part of the judgment uh, that was delivered yesterday. And that was certainly an option available to the, the Secretary of the State Capture Commission. He could have gone to the ordinary courts. There were criminal complaints uh, laid that were sort of sat on. So there may have been a practical sense that, uh, that other avenues were not exactly going to be as efficient. There was also the danger and very, very present danger in this case that Mr. Zuma would employ Stalingrad tactics and, and try and stall this case as it worked its way up through the lower courts. That's clearly a strategy that's been taken thus far in other matters. So beginning below the Constitutional Court ran a fundamental risk of this proceeding, of this contempt proceeding, lasting much longer than it should have. Remember, urgency was quite an important part of this, this case for two reasons. The, the State Capture Commission was coming to an end. And for every day that Mr. Zuma was in contempt of court and defiantly refused to answer the merits of that contempt, the, 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 the moral authority of the, of the judiciary was going to be in question. Every day, ordinary South Africans were looking at Mr. Zuma's example saying, well, if a powerful person like this can, can, get, uh, can weasel his way out of, a, out of a court order, perhaps I can do it as well. And I think the putting it, putting the putting the matter through the ordinary course would have just prolonged that maybe for four years, let alone weeks or months. And I think the weeks and months that this has dragged on has been damaging enough. And your view on the minority judgment? Well, the minority judgments were were interesting. Um, they certainly present um, a political inconvenience because Mr. Zuma's supporters are going to be reading that uh, minority with a very, very, very close eye and looking at some of the statements made therein. Um, the background to that, it's, uh, it's, it's quite an interesting debate because what you find in the, in the minority is a, is, a, is, is a criticism of the way Mr. Zuma's fair trial rights were treated by the majority. And it would help to have, a bit, have just a short understanding of how these contempt proceedings work. So, so the, 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 the dispute that started all this was Mr. Zuma's failure to obey a subpoena. 
um, from the State Capture Commission. And mm-hmm. that basically set in motion it's like a private dispute between between Mr. Zuma and the State Capture Commission. Um, contemporary proceedings are, are a hybrid of, of civil and criminal. So once a, uh, once a person is, uh, is charged with uh, contempt of court, um, the purpose is generally to try and enforce that underlying civil wrong to get him to obey the subpoena. Once a court has ordered him to do that and he disobeys that court, which happened several months ago for, with a constitutional court order, there is now a separate wrong, which is the disobedience of the court order itself. And that's viewed as a harm against the public, worth criticizing, worth criminalizing, sorry. Now, most of the time when you disobey a, a, a court order telling you to go and, uh, and, and obey a subpoena, the, the remedy is somewhat coercive. It tries to get you to actually do what you're supposed to do. In this case, it was clear Mr. Zuma was never going to do that. The commission didn't even try and ask uh, to get him to go back to the, the gave up. Perhaps rightly so. That was a, a view shared by many, uh, by many reasonable people. <laughs> but what that meant was uh, the character of this, of this uh, dispute became a little bit more like a criminal trial than a civil trial because we gave up on the civil part. The majority was comfortable with, uh, with, with giving him the, the prison sentence because the protections afforded to him by the process was robust enough. Um, in their view, particularly the, the, the letter that was sent to Mr. Zuma. So remember the, the Chief Justice uh, surprised us all with a, with a letter to Mr. Zuma after the hearing, asking him for his opinion on, on his, on his, uh, uh, on his um, sanction if he's found guilty. That was quite an extraordinary step. Um, but it was part of a process to give Mr. Zuma the sort of fair opportunity that was demanded by the unique character of these civil contempt of, of these contempt proceedings. Now the minority said that basically said, well, let's take the, let's take the majority on their word. Mm-hmm. The, it's pointless to try to get Mr. Zuma to take, uh, to get to, to go to the commission. So the criminal aspect of this trial, the criminal character is actually more, more, more implicated than you think. And therefore Mr. Zuma deserved more protections than were afforded to him. So the debate is not on its face absurd. Um, it is an interesting question, exactly the character of these, of these proceedings and what they demanded um, from, uh, uh, in terms of Mr. Zuma's rights. Now, I think it's very easy to, uh, to say in response to the minority that their anxieties were somewhat exaggerated. Um, this, was not, uh, this was not a case where Mr. Zuma was robbed of any opportunity to, to, give, his, to give his case. Um, the majority, the minority, seem to think he deserved the full suite of criminal um, protections, which is a quite a quite a robust set of protections that really don't seem to give him much more than what he got in this case. He got quite a decent set. So, really, one's assessment of the minority will will hinge on whether you think that Mr. Zuma uh, got enough of the of 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 the of the of the rights that he would have got if he wasn't accused in, a, in an ordinary criminal trial. Um, which ironically, and, and which fact, ironically tells you also that those people are, are accepting that he he is criminal then, and and therefore that is the reason that he he deserves this. Now, what what are those protections? Just by the way, many of us may be listening now, thinking, well, what are the, the suite of protections? And I, I mean, it's it's a, this is a great moment, an instructive moment for us to remember that the purpose of the law is actually to protect individuals from the state's excesses and procedures that, that are unfair. And even if those individuals are, are loathed and despised or are universally blamed for all the horrors of the last hundred years, let's say in this case, 10 years, um, they still deserve those rights in a, in a country which recognizes them. So that's important. The law is actually there to protect you and me. Otherwise, there's no point in having the law. It's not there as an organ of state to effectuate state um, largesse and state bullying. What, what the- my favorite, my favorite phrase of of the use of the law mm. is that it's there to protect the weakest and the worst of yeah, us. Correct. That is is always in know. this in this case. What protections did the minority say that he might have deserved that he didn't get? 
Well, that's interesting. So that'll be that. That's uh, in the analysis. That's really going to be where um, where one figures out where the minority and the majority differ on this. And mm-hmm. they point out a couple things. They point out the fact that uh, he didn't get a right to appeal um, because they sought uh, because the commission sought direct access to the constitutional court, the highest court in the land. There was no right to appeal. There's no court above this court. There's no adversarial process, uh, which means essentially you both two lawyers arguing with one another in an open court about uh, uh, why this has, uh, um, why this, uh, why this conviction should be had. There was, uh, this was brought urgently. Uh, Section 35, this fair trial right says you should have time uh, to defend yourself. Um, There was no formal plea that Mr. Zuma uh, could have entered he didn't receive the 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 the, the, the protection of um, presumption of innocence. There's a range. Um, it goes from A all the way to O in the in the in the alphabet. But those are the those are the key ones that the, that the minority uh, minority pointed out. Um, now, the, the, you re- yeah, go ahead. And and you and you you really have to ask yourself: Did he did he not get that um, in substance? So. The, the ordinary process by which this was brought, it, it, it's not like a, if you think of a normal criminal trial, it's sort of close to what you see in the, in the movies. There's someone sitting in the dock, there are witnesses, mm. there, there are people in open court leading evidence. The process that happened here was what they were, they called motion proceedings. So they proceed by way of papers. So everyone submits the case on paper. Mm-hmm. And that process isn't devoid of fairness. You set out the facts. It's a way of leading evidence. And the applicant will go first, but the responding party gets a chance to respond on the papers. You get to now, challenge the facts. Now, Chris, I'm, I, I'm sorry to interrupt you here, but there, and it's, it's always awful to ask a lawyer what they think of another lawyer's performance, but do you think his legal team did him a disservice by being as combative as they were? With the commission, we saw some of the of the communications between, you know, Judge Zondo or Judge Zondo's secretary in this case, the commission, and Jacob Zuma's legal team, and it didn't seem that they were going to brook any kind of, uh, of of, of I suppose you could say conciliation in this in this uh, situation. They were they were not prepared to make any. To, to 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 create any space for the commission to be able to give him a soft kid glove treatment or to be able to exact from him the answers that they require in a much more civil way. It seemed they were combative and aggressive from the beginning. Do you think that that made the court more likely to grant the sort of sentence that they have in this case? I think so. Um, the judgment is, is, is replete with, uh, with, with, uh, with, with criticisms of Mr. Zuma's disrespect and his, um, and his uncooperation with both the court and the commission. Mm. I think it was, uh, it was definitely something that was, it was a strategy pursued only by someone who was trying to avoid something very serious. I don't think one would have taken that strategy unless there was something, um, um, something quite serious to avoid. If he had been more cooperative, that would certainly have, uh, certainly have changed the course of events. It could, if, if he went before the commission, if he even filed papers, he the, the the extent of the of the of 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 Mr. Zuma's turning his back on the court was so severe he didn't even file it file a defence, which is which is something quite extraordinary. People don't do that. Um, do you, do you think that there's still room for a political solution? Hmm. Well, um, <laughs> I don't. Uh, it. A political solution can't uh, place aside the court order, if that's what you mean. They're, they're, whatever political solution follows from this has to be in line with the court order. So the political solution, solution has to be com- compatible with Mr. Zuma being in jail for 15 months. I can't, yeah, what I, would, I can't what say would confidently a, what, would what a political, political solution would be. What would it look like, Pumi, if you, if you could uh, figure it out for us? I mean, the fact is there are lots of people who support Jacob Zuma. I don't think there are a majority of people, but there are a number of people who will see this sentence as, oh, I told you that the system was aligned against our man. I told you that he was right to uh, avoid responsibility here because they're they're in some way not, you know, they don't have jurisdiction to rule on on matters that are political like this. 
What do you think a political so- solution would look like? And does this have the, the potential of turning him into a martyr? <laughs> Look, I don't know if it's got the potential of turning him into a martyr. I think a lot of, of the goodwill that he had with a lot of people has been eroded over the past couple of months. And people have gotten, you, except for Carl D. House, people <laughs> have kind of gotten bored with with him and his playing victim yeah. all the time, mm. right? And And you see it in the number of people that are still showing up outside, you know, unlike Ace Mahashule, he's not paying busloads of people to show up at court um, in front for him, mm-hmm. right? So that has been eroded. It's become less and less over the time. But I, I also think, I've always thought that there could have been a political solution to this entire thing, even before it got to where it is now. And I, I think about Putin and Yeltsin or Nixon in America, you know, yeah. the president should have arrived into the seat and, and gotten finished this, closed it off so that his entire presidency is not always talking about the past president. And, and he failed to do that then. And I don't know if he still has an opportunity now going forward to do something of that nature. I mean, people have, I saw, uh, Ronald Lamola, I think, tweeting a thing about the president. It is still the president's prerogative to pardon. <laughs> you know, he yeah. can give a presidential pardon. And and I don't know if he can still do that now, because I think that the, the horse has bolted. He should have done it up front. He should have just said to him, listen, guy, I'm going to give you a pardon. Just show up to this thing. Tell them what you're going to tell them. Well, you, you, know, you know, I mean, interesting. Have done uh, that. Richard Spur, who's been very vocal on Twitter on all of this, said Jacob Zuma deserves a pardon. He's 78 years old, has been poorly advised, mainly by people who sought only to exploit him for their own ends. 15 months in prison is like a death sentence for someone like him. It is very harsh. Cyril must act. That's coming from a quarter we didn't expect it to come from. Yeah, Chris, do you have any final comments on this before I, I, I let you go and do the good work of the, of the Helen Sisman Foundation? Well, look, I think um, I think I think the, the political point is probably the the, the right uh, the right tone on which on which to end this because I think the I think the legal battles um, sensibly now should come to an end uh, and 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 government now has to come up with the with the with the solution. Um, it's going to be a very interesting. What is it? We've we've gone two days from mm-hmm. the, from the judgment, so we two calendar days down, uh, three more until the minister has to do something, and I think that we. We can galvanize around this judgment. Uh, I think it's perfectly possible that um, uh, Mr. Zuma's camp can galvanize as well, but you can be you can be galvanized and and isolated at the same time. So, I think uh, this is uh, this is an important moment for South Africa, um, mm. and it's a the bold judgment and uh, and the bold statements. I think should give us a, a renewed a renewed commitment to uh, to constitutional democracy. Well, I'm, I haven't had anyone from the Helen Sisman Foundation on the show for a long time. And uh, really, you guys do sterling work, yeoman's work in South Africa in terms of, of bringing a number of, of non-government uh, organization issues to the front of the public consciousness. And you fight quietly behind the scenes, too, um, for, for individual rights and for equality before the law. It's really, really important. Thank you for the good work that you guys do. Thanks for thanks for having us on. Yeah, good to, good to see you. Thank you, Chris. Very nice to have Chris on the show this morning. That's Chris Fisher from the Helen Sisman Foundation. Well, Pums, I mean, you know, it could it could give him it could give his uh, legacy, uh, ironically, some pattern of respectability again because going to jail in this country used to be associated with, you know, political prison uh, with with. Uh, Crimes against the state and illicit, illegitimate state. Um, I'm not saying that that's the case here. I don't think that, that this will help Jacob Zuma. It must be a horrible experience for any man in his 70s, late 70s, to be going through. But he seems. Which is why I was making a point about Bill Cosby pardon. being 83. Yeah, yeah, exactly. But you know what, Pums? I mean, <laughs> this guy, he just doesn't seem. He's like Teflon. Nothing seems to affect him. <sighs> Yeah, so then jail won't affect him either. Quite probably. Um, let's bring in, because I know he's always got things to say about this, and we can never have him on the burning platform enough. Uh, people love it when he's on too. Gabriel Krauser, who's uh, 
who's written a really interesting article I'll tell you about in a moment. Um, there's a, there's a, a great campaign on the go called Racism is Not the Problem. We'll find out about that in a moment. But he's the head of campaign, senior analyst at the Institute of Race Relations. So, Gabriel, um, what, what do you make of the Jacob Zuma situation? What's your feeling on this? And, and what does the IRR say publicly about this? Uh, well, my sense is that this is just about the greatest victory for racism is not the problem. Uh, Jacob Zuma uh, should have gone to jail a long time ago before he became president. But there was a problem. And the problem was that his accusers were racist. Ululani Nguka, the chief prosecutor who took down Shabir Sheikh, was accused of being Impimpi, apartheid spy number mm. RS452, I think it was. Uh, the, the third force was behind, uh, all kinds of allegations against Zuma and his supporters, uh, said, this is unacceptable. Uh, in the political sphere, you can't criticize Zuma. Uh, if you do, you are exhibiting some form of racial prejudice. That line was then carried through into the mainstream media. Peter Bruce, Stephen Friedman, uh, the late Karima Brown, a host of others, Jacques Rousseau, uh, they all said in 2009 when the DA's campaign was uh, stop Zuma, stop corruption, speaking to the political solution uh, when it would have mattered most, uh, that this is basically racist and you can't endorse the DA on this basis. Uh, so when racism was the problem, Zuma was kept in power. Mm-hmm. That was the solution to the problem. Right. And finally, an allegation was brought where no one said racism is the problem here. Uh, whatever the disagreements are about the merits of uh, forcing someone to go to jail after they have refused a court order from the constitutional court. Right. No one is in two minds about the fact that race is not the problem. And what happens when race is not the problem? We get a little bit of move forward. We mm. saw a similar thing with William Kize, with Ace Mahashule. When South Africans finally drop the sort of silly racial narrative, uh, we seem to get some consequences. And this is the heart of the movement of this IRR initiative so, is to get real about our problems. All right. I'm, I'll talk about that initiative in a moment. But there, there, are, there are quite a few jarring things going on at the moment. Someone posted something on social media yesterday. And, and it was sent to me, and I thought it was such an interesting take on everything. So here we are. We're in a country where we're dealing with a third wave. There are lots of people being hospitalized. No one doubts that this disease hasn't had a serious impact. The lockdowns perhaps have had an even more serious impact on, on our country. We're at level four again. We have a health minister who's been placed on special leave. The health minister who was in charge of our, our vaccine rollout, of our COVID reaction, all of that stuff. He's on on special leave for corruption. We have a deputy president who is currently in Russia seeking treatment for some disease that we've never been told about, even though we're paying for it. Um, we're not paying for the disease. We're paying for the treatment. We don't know what's going on there. <laughs> Didi Mabuza is nowhere to be found. And it's very, it's all being kept very hush hush. Nobody knows what's actually happening there. Our actual president, who's a billionaire, um, keeps telling South Africans that we have to make endless sacrifices to fight this disease, even though it seems that he and his political friends are making absolutely no sacrifices in this respect. This is a very strange situation for us to find ourselves in in a country. Someone made the point also about Jacob Zuma, that this is the only country where you can go from prisoner to president in Mandela's case, and then from president to prisoner in Zuma's case. So in some ways, we are really an outlier. Yeah, I think that's true. Um, especially with lockdowns, we had the world's longest lockdown. We probably had the world's most irrational lockdown, the banning on bikinis and yeah. open-toed shoes and e-commerce and cigarettes. And mm. The liquor bans are sometimes reasonable, sometimes very odd. Let's just call it capricious. Let's call it capricious. Very capricious, very whimsical. <laughs> um, and yet the best evidence is that, that we spread the virus faster than anywhere else in the world. Uh, we, we get blamed, we get blamed for the, 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 the beta version of this virus anyway. It seems that they're calling it the South mm. African variant, regardless of how nasty that is. You know, we couldn't call yes. it this the Wuhan virus, but we, we can call it the South African variant. Indeed. Um, and if you, if you look at Discovery's latest estimates, it's that uh, about more than 62% of the country has already been infected, hmm. uh, which means basically that uh, it should be much easier to control the spread here. 
than anywhere else because it's as if 62% have been vaccinated. Uh, it's right. as if we have a very high vaccination rate. Uh, we saw a report in the Rapport newspaper, which I think really is excellent, uh, a couple of weeks ago that the Russians had offered 15 million vials of Sputnik V to be delivered between March and May for free. Uh, that was refused. Uh, on what I take to be spurious uh, medical arguments. Uh, at the same time as refusing free vaccines, the government has blamed vaccine apartheid for the failure of the vaccine rollout to uh, meet any kind of international standard. Of course, many African countries have outcompeted us in this regard, even those with much lower GDPs per capita. So we've sort of failed on every account. And I think that one of the one of the tragedies about this is that Several thousand people have at this stage certainly died as a result of government inaction. Right. And the question then becomes, will there be political consequences for this? And one reason to doubt that there will is because of the level of um, is at times just incompetent uh, reporting on the case. Here's, here's an interesting example. Um, a, a study uh, by a government-backed uh, uh, medical association was initiated in October last year, a seroprevalence study, to figure out exactly uh, how many people have had the virus. Yeah. You know, you know, Iceland was the first to do this. It's happened in Germany, America, and so on. This started in October, then carried through December. Somewhere around January, it was paused. In February, uh, it was announced that uh, it was reopening. In fact, it wasn't announced. I phoned the head of the institute and uh, told me we reported on that. And those that field work mm -hmm. has just been completed, and we're still waiting for the results. So this is going to turn out to be an eight-month seroprevalence study, which kind of undermines its effectiveness because the whole point of a seroprevalence study is that you take a snapshot of the country at a time. Right. And rather than estimate like Discovery does, which is reasonable, you actually test tens of thousands of people. I mean, I think it's 180,000 people being tested overall. You test them within a short window to see how many people have the virus at this stage, and you use that to inform your lockdown response. You right. use it to inform <clears throat> your decisions yeah. about vaccination. That study has been completely bungled effectively by taking so long to complete, and we still don't have the results. So we didn't go into the third wave knowing where we have the highest seroprevalence, where we can concentrate vaccination. No one even seems to be talking about vaccinating the immuno-naive, people who've never been infected, who are the most vulnerable. Mm -hmm. We instead seem to be vaccinating as many people that have already had it and therefore don't get much boost from the vaccines as those who haven't. And that puts us, it just, it, it's and like they, they we're even, in this dire, dire situation. And yet we're going to make 500 million vaccines for the World Health Organization, which is going to make us a bit of money. So thousands no, and thousands well, of people have died uh, what because I we've found, dragged our feet. What, what I found but so, we will make a little bit of money. Yeah, what I found so ridiculous is that they're trotting out that whole flatten the curve line again, which was a lie in the beginning and is being used as a lie again in this case. This has been absolute flat-footed incompetence on the part of... South Africa's government, our health department, and anybody who's been charged with the responsibility of trying to care about ordinary South Africans and their lives. There is no doubt about it that there must be consequences. And if those consequences aren't going to be political, then they ought, ought as well to be criminal. I think many South Africans probably feel that way, especially those people who've had to bury their loved ones um, at funerals that have been capped at 50 people or even less. Um, some people who haven't even been able to say goodbye to their loved ones as they've as they've passed away from this horrible disease because of stupid and again capricious rules brought by this government. There's a serious element to this, which people who are justifiably feeling virus fatigue are starting to 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 cast a, a dim view of. But I think most of us, even those of us who are sick to death of hearing about coronavirus, I count myself among them realize that there is a very serious problem going in. There's a very serious problem happening. There's, a, there's no solution proposed. And the people who are charged with this responsibility are completely useless at dealing with anything to do with it. Yeah, uh, no lies detected, Gareth. I think that I, I really think there's a strong case to be made that South Africa has had the worst response in the world. If you, we don't have the worst deaths per capita, uh, but if you look at our, if you look at an age-adjusted assessment, uh, because coronavirus does still have this sort of asymmetric age effect, then it does start looking like we have one of the world's worst. And if you combine that with our economic contraction, uh, if you combine that with the undermining of faith in the rule of law through murders. 
uh, Collins Causa, Sibusisa Amos, Petrus Michels, 50 others just in the first few weeks of lockdown. You combine that with undermining the faith in science, a very strange uh, kind of imprimatura coming from the, uh, the, our, our command council's uh, National scientific advisors. Council, yeah. Uh, and and you and 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 so th- when they give bad advice, this this means that people stop. Unfortunately, there's a tendency to confuse science with the scientists in charge. So yeah. the scientists in charge make a mistake or, or say something that's very silly, and then some people just think, okay, well, science is bad, and let's go back to having ivermectin with cream soda. Like I think ivermectin, uh, there's some very strong evidence that it's a, it's a really good idea, <laughs> but the sort of bush school <laughs> logic that I've come across visiting some farms in the free state. Uh, is really coming out of a place of of very medieval kind yeah. of skepticism about the ability Pumi, of you... the empirical method to give us good stuff. So this this undermines the body politic and with the 1.3 million jobs undermining the economy. I think that the the scars that have been uh, is sort of torn into the fabric of our society are going to are going to live with us. Those of us lucky enough to survive for for many years. What do you say to that, Pums? I mean, you know, th- th- do you believe that there's any defence? for what, what Gabriel and I are saying here about governments dealing with this, this coronavirus. I had a chat with a friend yesterday. I don't want to place all this responsibility on poor Pumi. And she said to me, you know what? It's wrong to blame the government. You can't blame them. This is a virus. You can't control it. But there are ways that certain governments have responded to it that I believe are better than the way that our government has. And that's fine. I think the, the one thing that South Africans, that all of us as South Africans know is that our government keeps letting us down. And so it's important yeah. to, to ask yourself <laughs> what it is that you are doing mm-hmm. to keep yourself and your family as safe as you can. Mm. You know, earlier when we started the show, that's what we spoke about. And and it's now it's all got to be about personal responsibility. Yeah. It's got to be about personal responsibility, you know, so sign up when your turn comes, hope to get the vaccine, get the vaccine. But in the meantime, be responsible. Do what you need to do to keep yourself safe and your family safe. Our government has let us down, has been letting us down for many, many, many years. I don't know why anybody would suddenly think that in the face of everything that's happening now, suddenly by Mm. some magical wave of the wand, they're going to become brilliant better <laughs> come on all right so amen I, I think pumi's i think pumi's point on personal responsibility is exactly right i just want to not let the private sector off the hook okay because i think a lot of it has been government failure a lot of it's been private sector failure i started this year new year's day and new year's eve i i really wanted to be having a party and a hangover but instead I was furiously reading medical journals and writing, beginning a lobby, helping to begin uh, together with my colleagues in the IRR, a lobby to get the private sector involved with procuring vaccines because it was clear at that stage the government had missed se- several deadlines, had then lied yeah. about yeah. <laughs> even missing the deadlines, that we needed to widen the pipe of, of flow of vaccines into this country. And the private sector, we had... Uh, international vaccine producers from the West, if you don't like Sputnik V, uh, mm. who were willing to sell to the private sector. They gave yeah. us that assurance. They said, just as long as they really call for it, we will we will go forward with it. And Brazil gave a nice example earlier in the year where the national government had said, no, 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 no you can't, you can't go about any system other than through national government. And a provincial leader who was critical of Bolsonaro, uh, he made vaccines and acquired vaccines and started injecting people and said, stop, you can jail me now uh, for for saving people's lives. And let's see what that does for you politically. Discovery could have done that. The other major pharmaceuticals could have done that. They could have applied real pressure. And instead, they kind of sat on their hands. And we lobbied hard January, February, March, because that's the time that we needed to get these vaccines in Mm -hmm. order to save lives in the third wave. And instead of joining the call, we got a lot of pushback. And by May, June, July, we started seeing more people from the major corporate saying, oh, it'd be really nice if you guys let us buy the vaccines. Too little, too late. And really, when you combine that with a kind of, semi-tolerant attitude to nationalizing healthcare, basically oh, yeah. saying the problem with our healthcare is the government's not running enough of it. Yeah. Guys, uh, people are making that, money. People yeah. are private making sector, money. Exactly. Exactly. People are making money. Yeah. <laughs> and so every and this is why for me, personal responsibility trumps everything. 
because everybody is taking care of themselves. So, mm. you know, it's, it's very difficult for a lot of people in the private sector who do rely on huge government contracts to go against the government. And, and, you who, know, and so and they're not terrified. going to go against the government See, this, because that's their client. This is what I find so, so spineless and weak willed about them too. And, and it's good that we, uh, we, we make time in the burning platform to attack the corporations who many people justifiably do not see as their friends. Um, first of all, because as Pumi says, they're making money. But second of all, because government are always holding the sword of Damocles over them, saying we're going to nationalize healthcare anyway. And they're trying to sort of negotiate as if they've got an equal um, representation in the room. They're trying to kind of be government's friend when it suits them, trying to show that they're not the enemy. Um, and this, this, is, this is not a great strategy because all the go- government already don't care what you bring to the table. They're not interested in that. They have a plan and we've seen that they're willing to implement that plan, regardless of how much damage it does. Yeah, no, I, my colleague, Dr. Anthea Jeffrey, made representations to Parliament about the National Health Insurance Bill last week. And uh, we watched that sort of hour and a half long representation, which is fascinating. Uh, it was also terrifying to watch the previous representations that had come from major corporates. Mm. And their legal representatives basically were making the argument that uh, this is going to happen and we'd like our slice of the pie. Right. So we're not going to stop you. We really like this, but could we make a little bit more money out of it? Yeah, correct. It's They've they've already abdicated um, any kind of, of, of dog in the fight. You know what? Um, so helping yourself, just to make this practical, if you want to help yourself, and I think Pumi's dead right, one thing you can do if you're a client, you can uh, call up your health insurer, you can call up your hospital, and you can say, you know, really? Yeah, thanks for looking <laughs> Can you do something me. about this? Yeah. Can you change your tune? Yeah. I think that if there's if we all bring pressure on the and you know these people are calling around asking for business now because it's been a tough year even for them. Um, so if someone approaches you and says, "Hey, where's your medical aid? Do you want to change?" Say to them, "Well, what was your position on national health care?" And you want to speak to the CEO and you want to put pressure on those people and write your letters and do the things that we ordinary small folk can do. And your money, put your money where it counts. Um, speak yeah. to the manager. Speak to the manager. Yeah, be a be a Karen. I can't believe I'm actually advocating this, but be a Karen about this because it's the only way that these um, these big health schemes yeah. will start to take notice. So I'm going to be change, a citizen. Take yeah. charge. Take I'm charge. Gonna, I'm going to change tack here because one of the the things that constantly comes up in South Africa, we never have enough time to talk about it, even though. So much of it is really just emotional and it's attached to our history. And we have every reason in this country to be extremely prickly about race. But you guys have launched this campaign, the Racism is Not the Problem campaign. Now, I've seen a couple of billboards. I've seen uh, a bit of social media activity. Explain to us what it is. And more especially, I saw your article this week about the questions that you've asked prominent South Africans about Mm. race and about the oppressed and the oppressor. And what you've discovered about this, because I think this is quite good news. This is quite heartening stuff for those many, many South Africans who are at, uh, in a practical war to survive at the moment. They're not really particularly interested in ideology or in identity to the degree that the politicians are. Tell us the story. Yeah, so to start out with this the, the, in a, in a way, this campaign from my personal side started when I was a small child and there was a fight between some neighbors in Yeovil, which was the first rainbow kind of uh, <laughs> suburb in Joburg, one of the first in, in, in uh, Johannesburg in the 90s. And we figured out uh, as, as naughty people, as gossipers, that what had happened is there was an allegation of infidelity. Oh. So I went to one of my friends and I said, oh, the reason they were shouting at each other at the party was because the wife was jealous that the husband was maybe sleeping with the other guy's daughter. Ooh. He said, what you're saying, but they, but racism was the problem. I'm saying, no, no, racism wasn't the problem here. It was infidelity. And he's like, but how can you say there was no problem? And that moment stuck with me because I saw it happen again and again. When, when, when it turns out racism is not the problem, South Africans are so used to hearing that racism is the, the root cause analysis mm. of all terrible things. Then they think you're saying, no, there's no problem at all. So in a way, this is a good news story, right? We ask South Africans, we asked a demographically representative sample of South Africans across all nine, so, uh, nine provinces, 80% black, 10% Indian, uh, colored, 10% white, 10%, 5% Indian. We asked them, have you personally experienced any racism in the last five years? 80% said no. That is unthinkable when I was a child. It really yeah. is very good news we ask people is racism what are the major problems in the country three percent identified racism 95 percent had more 
bigger fish to fry. Like and let's just say we we have to always put these caveats in. That is not to say that there isn't still racism. I think everybody yes. acknowledges that there are always going to be shitty racist people. There's always going to be shitty evidence of racism and and bad behavior from certain quarters. Those people are probably not going to change. And I think it was Oprah Winfrey who said maybe a generation has to die out before we sol- solve this problem. However, we must take stock of the fact that we've come a long way, especially in a country where this stuff was not only uh, a matter of of individuals being racist to each other, but the state itself was an organ for discrimination. Mm. Mm. So so this is exactly right. And, and, and a big part of this is saying, look, it's good news, but it's also really bad news. Uh, we, you need to think that when you hear racism is not the national problem that it's made out to be, and most people agree in our polling that politicians talk up racism and colonialism to excuse their own failures. Yeah. So they know that it's being exaggerated. That doesn't mean we don't have problems. This is also a very serious campaign to get real about our problems. Now, one of the problems is, uh, in our view, uh, race-based policy. And we are South Africans directly. Do you think that just more jobs and better education will reduce, the, will evaporate the inequalities between races? A supermajority said yes. So a supermajority agree that we can get where we want to be without race-based law. We then asked, are you for a voucher system uh, for education, for health, for um Housing. Now, a voucher system is basically we say the government's really good at collecting taxes, really bad at spending. So instead of the government administering the school and the, and the RDP housing building thing and the healthcare, you get a voucher that you can go and redeem at any private school. And there's lots of low cost private schools in this country that have been mm. growing and really outperforming government yeah. schools. If you want to send your kids there for 2000 rand a month, you don't pay. The government will pay. Right. The same thing for the RDP house. You get the voucher, you hire whatever contractor you want to build a house and you can build a much nicer one. We said, would you like that? And people, most people said yes. Then we asked, would you like that or more BEE? And 75% said, no, we'd much rather have the voucher system than more BEE. The only exception was amongst white people where 35% of white people said, no, I think I will personally benefit more from BEE than from a voucher system. Uh, so amongst Indians, colors, black people, it was like 80-20, and amongst white people, it was like 55-35. And I think that is a very telling result. And I can relate to that because I was privileged to get a scholarship to go to one of South Africa's elite private schools, and a lot of my peers that are white have done very well in the last 10 years uh, uh, running BEE together companies, black and white kids together, whose parents were millionaires and billionaires, and they have been milking it. They've been doing very yeah. well for themselves. Yeah, yeah. Good for them. But uh, yeah, I, it, it's 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 this is important not just because uh, the president has asked for a review of BEE, and one of the uh, campaign initiatives that we've done is we've already sent fifteen letters to prominent South Africans to ask whether they should qualify and their children should qualify as candidates for BEE. These are vice chancellors of universities, multimillionaires and billionaires, uh, CEOs of companies. We will then be sending that letter out to every member of parliament and every member of cabinet. Because I think that, you know, there is something strange about time moving along. Mm. We are now at a time where people my age uh, that went to Kilton and St. Stithians and St. John's, uh, sons and daughters of billionaires and millionaires, people with great political connections are still qualified as previously disadvantaged. Which is ridiculous. And I think it's an insult. Uh, I think it's also a great danger to the economic prospects of this country. Who are these, and so, who are these people you've asked um, about about who's, who are the, the disadvantaged and who are not? I mean, are, are, there, are there names we would recognize there? Give us a couple of those names. And, and tell us if you've got uh, a response from any of them. Uh, so far, we've got uh, quite a few. We are considering this and we'll get back to you mm-hmm. soon. Mm-hmm. Uh, the I've, I, I, I'm not going to list all 15 names because it's too early in the morning for me to do that. But we've got, uh, in terms of academics, we've got the vice chancellor of WITS, uh, UCT and Stellenbosch. In terms of capitalists, we've got the CEO of um, Telcom, uh, of Signia, uh, and of uh, another company. We Discovery, asked black and white I think people. You asked Discovery we think as it's well. interesting yeah. to... Sure. And Discovery, Adrian Gore, uh, we asked uh, uh, several politicians. One of them was John Stiernesen. We, we're keen to see whether he thinks he should qualify as disadvantaged because he didn't go to university. 
and and pearl, <laughs> which is a little bit silly. pearl tusi, interestingly enough. I mean, yes. I, I would be curious. and black coffee and black coffee. I'd like to see what these people answer, all of them, because yeah. some of these I, some of these uh, are South Africa's um, most uh, spoiled people. They really are completely ensconced and cocooned in uh, extraordinary comfort and success, and and many of them have made their own way, and I, I applaud that. Yeah. But do you still look at yourself as being previously disadvantaged, regardless of your current situation? And is that the only way to look at the at the, the the lives of South Africans, whether or not you can consider yourself fortunate, privileged, or not? And I think, look, here's one way of thinking about this: if it was the case that South Africans were mostly racist. If it was the case that even if you're a, a black multimillionaire, you still can't get a seat at the table at the Westcliff Hotel or the Santon Cocktail mm. Circuit. If it was the case that you couldn't vote or, you know, there were rich black people who came to visit South Africa during apartheid and, and would get a temporary honorary white status, but spat on if they went to the wrong bar mm. and there'd be no consequence for that. If that was still the case today. Then I could see the argument for saying, look, even though I'm rich and powerful, I'm kind of still disadvantaged citizen, in this yeah. legal way or by the fact that people are judging me. But the fact that our data shows that most South Africans, poor South Africans, middle-class South Africans, rich South Africans are not experiencing racism on a daily basis. The fact that we have nominally at least equality before the law, these seem to indicate that there should be a different way of looking at things. One that is much more individually focused that says you are disadvantaged insofar as you don't have access to a job. You don't have a great education because you were funneled through a terrible public school system. You can't get medicine because you can't even afford the taxi fare to get to the clinic. Mm. But people in that situation are disadvantaged. People who are... Are we not... Are are you not falling into the same trap then to say that this thing is not such a big problem and yet here you are having spent the better part of the past 15 minutes talking about nothing else well i asked the question so, so i'm to blame so so here so here is a problem the, you, you know what i'm saying so, i hear you so i think that there's I I was trained in philosophy, so I like the word meta. There's a meta problem, right? Which is that most South Africans know what the problems are. Most South Africans know that unemployment, crime, corruption, poor service delivery, bad housing, bad education, Mm. these are the major problems. But we're not dealing with those problems. So there's a problem about dealing with the problems. And that problem is conversational. There's something about how we talk about our problems that gets in the way. And that's why I started with Jacob Zuma. We knew the problem with Jacob Zuma was that he was corrupt. We knew the problem was to do with the arms deal, was to do with the fact that he was supporting nefarious characters who were taking over the Secret Service, taking over SARS and so on. But it was difficult to talk about and therefore difficult to get actual accountability because as soon as people accused him of corruption, the pushback from a small minority was, ah, you're just being racist or are you just, what do you, what do you think? So that is a a meta problem. And 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 that's where conversationally we feel we need to break it down. What do you think? Make it normal. Here you are in a position to start conversations and in a position to, to drive conversations and, and have, have the, the discussion framed in a particular way. And yet the choice that is being made is to frame this conversation around the fact that race is not a problem. No, I never said it's not a problem. I never said race is not a problem. I said it's not the problem. Okay, it's not the problem, right? And yet you choose to frame the entire conversation around the thing that is not the problem rather than frame the conversation around the things that are the problem and how to solve them. What, what, what did I say about the voucher system? I'm, if you can find another South African who gets prominent platforms, and I'm very privileged to get it, I'm very grateful to be here. If you can find another South African who's talking up the voucher system for education, please have them on the show as well. I'm talking about that. If you, I, I talk about the lockdown situation because as far as I can tell, I'm the journalist who spent the most effort researching seroprevalence and researching our uh, ability or inability to get vaccines. The IRR was at the front of the campaign to mm. try and get the private sector involved what? with acquiring vaccines. I There are a I, lot of problems that we take very I, I seriously and that we're sorry, driving with, an initiative to address. But Papuda, with, um, 
is Papuda is a bit of legislation, with, for example, due, on the table. With due respect to both of you, I, I don't want us to talk like about BE plus. I don't want us to talk about what we should and shouldn't talk about. This has come mm. up. This has been half of the burning platform today, and I thought it deserved some attention. So, if anyone's to blame for choosing the subject matter, it's me. I do want to know, though, for me, what you think of the of the voucher system, what you think of the findings in this this survey that's been done, whether you think that that's actually a good indication or estimation of how most South Africans feel? Because I, 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 your feelings and your thoughts on this, I, I would be interested to know. I think most South Africans know that they are probably... Let's start here. If you are a 10-year-old living in Gandla today, mm. the number of times that you are going to come across a white South African who will be racist to you are very, very few, mm-hmm. minimal. But the number of times that you are going to come against a school with no proper toilets are very high. So that kid's problem is not going to be racism. That yeah. kid's problem is going to be, oh my God, there are no proper toilets at my ha- at my school and no proper toilets at my house, right? So that, that for me is, it, it's it's not even... Something to, you know, whether you are in Engandla or whether you're in the middle of the free state or the problems are different for every, every part of this country. And depending on the experience that you are having, there are people who are having, as we said, there are people who are having problems where in their workplace, they are being bullied, uh, very much along racial lines and there's nothing they can do about it, right? We know that. That person's real problem is racism. But the fact for me that you have now done this research and you find these findings and then the decision to write letters to people who are in positions of power and to further the conversation that says, do you think you're at disadvantage? Rather than saying, people are saying they want a voucher system for this kind of thing. You know, it's it's well, you're choosing well, this particular way of looking at it rather than forwarding the positive findings that you have had that say people aren't interested in race. Don't tell us what you think about race. This is what the people want. How do we make this happen? So I think that uh, there's an economic point. And the economic point is that uh, one of the reasons South Africa has had a shrinking wealth stock since before the plague is the... BEE plus, right? Uh, BEE plus EWC plus NHI plus the move for prescribed assets. These moves, these policy moves plus Papuda, which is really the worst legislation currently being tabled. Uh, these, these legislative moves are, are driven forward by a politics that is all about race. So rather than deal with accountability, when Zuma was replaced by Sora Maposa, the move was, okay, now let's pretend that the reason, uh, most South Africans are poor is because a handful of uh, farmers are land thieves and they are oppressing everyone. And what we need to do is expropriate them without compensation. The result of that is to increase joblessness, to decrease investment and to make this a harder place for ordinary South Africans to get ahead. So race is at the core of, unfortunately, the tripartite alliance plus the EFF's policy drive, and they hold a supermajority in parliament. So we have to address that. Most South Africans know that racism is not the problem it's being out yeah. to be. Okay. But if you don't address I, that, I, then you get worse policies, which I make it do. harder to deal Listen. with the real situation. So we need, it, we need to walk and chew at the same time, right? We need to say, look, racism is not the problem you're making it out to be, and these are the solutions that we want. And I think that BEE is a major policy problem. I think that ramifying right. BEE through Papu uh, and EWC and so will make already, the problem worse. All right, we're already over time, Gabriel, but there is a question here from Eleutheria, and it may be something many people are asking. What is Papuda, it sounds revolting. Just give us an idea of what that is quickly and we can wrap it up for this morning because we're out of time. Okay, thank you, Gareth. So that is an anti-discrimination <laughs> law currently on the books. And at the moment, it says you may not discriminate on the basis of race, gender, uh, religion, and so on. Which I understand. Now, there is an- we, already the Constitution makes it, um, makes it impossible for people to do that and get away with it. Yeah. And so Papuda is just the legislation that gives effect to that. Mm. Now there's an amendment to that legislation, which says you can't defend, the burden of proof is on you. If someone accuses you you of being racist, you have to prove that you're not racist. And if this amendment goes through, you're not allowed to say, look, I can show you that I didn't intend to be racist. So Discovery is a nice example. At the end of last year, they uh, 
a, a report came out showing that they had found more a disproportionate number of black doctors to right. be fraud fraudulent than white doctors. Now their counter argument is: Look, that's not because we're discriminating on the basis of race. We have this way of figuring out who's a fraudulent doctor, and it just turns out that this is the inequality of Actuarial. outcomes that we got. There we go. Under the new Papuda legislation, that doesn't matter. It doesn't matter what your objective grounds proven you're using. Innocent. And not just that, you can't say we didn't intend to discriminate on the basis of race. If there, uh, if there is inequality of outcomes, then you are racist. In your synagogue, your mosque, or your church, if you don't have 80% black people, 10% colored people, 10% white people, 5% Indian people, then you're racist unless you show that you are sort of bringing people in on a quota basis. In, in your school, the same thing would hold. In your club, in your local uh, quiz night thing. I mean, literally, the current legislation, it sounds crazy, uh, but I have spoken to some of the best surely, legal minds in surely, the country, and, and that is literally what's being tabled. But surely unenforceable? You can't execute legislation that's as, as bizarre as this. I mean, it'd be very hard to police. So I think what happens is that capricious, that word you introduced earlier, becomes the rule of the day. And it's the same thing with expropriation without compensation. It's unenforceable. But what you can do is then say, look, you guys need a, a turn another cheek, be nice to us, don't criticize us. If this business does come after us, if this prominent individual does come after us, then we will go after them and use this legislation in order to mm. do it. So they won't go after everyone, but the yeah. chief rabbi, for example, has been writing very nasty things about the lockdown, very nasty things about government policies in general. Well, maybe the chief, maybe maybe the synagogue becomes a primary target for this kind of legislation and you leave the, so the we, nice church we give shitty, by we give, we, give, we give shitty politicians the opportunity to victimize individuals. All right, I'm going to have to call it off at this point, as much fun as it is hearing you and Pumi argue about what we should and shouldn't be arguing about. This has been a very interesting... <laughs> it's meta. Um, yeah, I know. It's always meta. That's why I love having you two on. Um, it is always fun on the Burning Platform. Gabriel, thank you for uh, bringing our attention to this very interesting survey and to your campaign. Pumi, as always, thank you very much. Your insights are always appreciated, and you can see it in the comments too. We will see you next week for The Burning Platform and a brand new slate of uh, points of view. Obviously, there'll be lots more stories and just maybe we'll have a former president who's in jail. Who knows? We'll have to wait and see. It could happen and it could happen right here. Don't miss it next week. That is The Burning Platform for today. It's brought to you by Nando's and we will see you on Thursday next week. Thanks, Pumalele. Thank you, Gabriel. And most, espe most especially, thank you to you for being on the show with us this morning.